as we look at our world around us and we see so much pain and so many challenges that people face. And we need a living hope in the midst of this challenging world. Lord, we, we think of the family of Ross Balsam as he passed away this week. And it was such a beautiful celebration of his life last night here at Breedens, but we also recognize that for Pat, his wife, Katie, his granddaughter, other family members and friends, it's such a hard road ahead of them. Lord, I pray that you will be their living hope, that you will sustain them, that you will guide them, that you will support them through your presence and also through the presence of the church family around them. Lord, we also think about just what we saw in the news yesterday with the shooting in the synagogue. And it seems like we hear of this news of shootings and, and terrorism far too often. And it's, it's heartbreaking. But Lord, we thank you that you are still living hope that we can cling to even in the midst of hard, hardships and heartaches. And Lord, I pray that you will do a work in each one of us, helping us to cling more fully to Jesus and helping us to represent him faithfully to the world around us. And as we open the scripture today, I pray that your word will teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we will be thoroughly equipped for everything to which you are calling us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, earlier this morning in the children's message, we talked about how God is completely trustworthy. And one of the things I've observed when I've met people who have a deep faith in, in God, that they really trust Him, is that they can usually point to specific instances in their lives that, that reveal to them in very real ways how faithful God is. I think about my life and how down through the years, I, I can point to a number of specific instances of when I saw God's faithfulness in tangible ways. But probably the most powerful one, the one that rises above all the rest for me, took place in the fall of 2002. Because in the fall of 2002, I was raising financial support to be a missionary with an organization called Crew, doing ministry at North Dakota State University. And specifically, before I could begin ministry on campus, I had to raise $2,820 in ongoing monthly support as well as several thousand dollars in one-time support in order to supply my salary and my insurance and my ministry expenses. And that was a daunting task. Now, the majority of my, my, uh, my support came from appointments with individuals and families. But again, it was an intimidating, kind of scary process. I remember early on those first few weeks as I was driving to appointments, in my truck, I had one song playing over and over and over. It was by a man named Rich Mullins. And it sang, Hold Me Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. And that spoke to what was going on inside of me. That it, it was scary. It was intimidating. But that process in the fall of 2002 also ended up being amazing. I look back at what God was doing in my life in that time and what he was doing in, in raising that support financially from the ministry at North Dakota State. And, and I look at that as probably the single most formative experience I ever had in my life in terms of teaching me to trust God. What I learned in that process, among other things, is that when God calls someone to something, he will always provide. And so that gave me a lot of confidence in being able to trust God through whatever comes my way. And now, as we as a church are in the middle of a capital campaign to raise $1.4 million to transform this building to be a more effective ministry tool, that can be kind of daunting as well. But my experience of seeing God's faithfulness to provide in the past gives me confidence 
that because this is the direction where he's calling us now, he will provide for us now in the present as well. Because where God calls, he provides. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We are in a series right now that's called Joyful Generosity. And today, as we take this next step in the series, I want to look at some insights from, John, from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and then weave them together with the experience I had of growing in deeper trust in God as I was raising financial support with crew. Now, let me give you some background on this passage in 2 Corinthians. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city called Corinth. And he was writing to them to encourage them to provide financial support for the church in Jerusalem. Because in that time, the church in Jerusalem was large, the largest church in the area, but they were struggling financially. And the main reason was because most of the people in that church were very, very poor. And so Paul's vision was that the churches in a given area would help support one another financially when another church was in need. And we actually see back in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, his call to help support this church in Jerusalem. He said in verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are, <clears throat> excuse me, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And so what we see there is call, Paul calling this church in Corinth to be prepared to give financially to the church in Jerusalem. To, to set aside money each week according to their means, their financial means, but set aside to be ready. And so here in 2 Corinthians, it takes place about a year later that Paul's writing here. And it's very evident to Paul that the Corinthians have not prepared adequately for giving to that church in Jerusalem. And so what he's doing, he's writing to them saying, okay, I'm going to pass through Corinth soon on my way to Jerusalem. That would be a great time to pick up your contribution for that church. So why don't you be ready? And he gives two different examples to motivate them in their generous contributions. And the first example we're going to look at is in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 7. So I invite, you to, I invite you to follow along as I read, picking up in verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. So this is the first example of joyous generosity that Paul gives here. It's of the church in Macedonia. Now Macedonia, if you aren't familiar with where that is, 
It's in a region that is in the northern part of what we now know as Greece. And you can see it up there in the, in the northern part of what's now Greece. It's that region up there. That's where these churches were that he's referring to. You see Corinth in the southern part of Greece marked by that star. And we have to understand that the churches in Macedonia were struggling. On one hand, they, they were undergoing severe persecution because of their faith. And in fact, um, Paul calls it here a severe test of affliction. But on top of that, they were very poor. I mean, most of the population then was poor, but the persecution made it even harder for them. So they didn't have much money. They were struggling because of persecution. But out of that poverty and out of that struggle came something very surprising. Look with me again to verse 2. Paul says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So what we see here is their joy overflowed into generosity. And I love the descriptors here in verse 2 that it was their abundance of joy that overflowed into a wealth of generosity. It's actually from this verse that the title for our sermon series came, Joyful Generosity. But what we have to see here is that their giving was certainly not because they had a surplus of money. It's not like they had extra money in an account thinking, oh, what should we do with this? Oh, maybe we should give it away. They did not have surplus money. I mean, it says here that they were in extreme poverty. So their giving to this cause was not like King David's giving that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. And in 1 Chronicles 29, we saw that King David gave a lot to the capital campaign to build the temple. But King David's giving was out of his wealth. He still gave sacrificially. He gave some out of his nest egg that he'd saved up for the future for a rainy day. But even still, when King David gave, he gave generously. But he didn't give to the point where he was wondering, okay, will I have enough money to feed my family? Will I have enough money left over in order to pay the mortgage? But here for these Macedonians, they were already struggling to get by. Paul again said that they were in extreme poverty. So it's very clear that their generosity is certainly not fueled by an abundance of money. What fueled their generosity, Paul says, is an abundance of joy. An abundance of joy was what fueled their generosity. And Paul doesn't clarify where this joy came from. But there's no question where it came from, really. It came from the relationship with God. Back in the early church, the early church was growing like crazy. It was a really exciting time. But one of the distinctive characteristics of the early church was joy. This was in an era where a lot of people struggled. There, in, in general culture there, there was not much joy. But the Christians experienced a joy that set them apart from everyone else and made Christianity very attractive. It was a joy that, that came out of gratitude because of all that Jesus had done for them. It was a joy that, that came from just knowing God personally and the privilege that is. It was a joy that came from their fellowship with each other, that, that rather than every man for themselves, the, the Christian community was a place of warmth, of care, of togetherness. And it was all this joy, the abundance of joy, that fueled their generosity. And, and we see here that, that they gave with a wealth of generosity. I think we need to be clear about what that means. Because when it's talking here about a wealth of generosity, it's not talking about the amount that they gave. 
It's not the size of their contribution. Because reality is many of them were poor. Their financial means were limited. But what Paul is talking about when he talks about the wealth of their generosity, he's talking about how willing and sacrificial and joyous was their giving above and beyond what might be expected. And he says specifically that they gave according to and even beyond their means. Look with me to verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So when it says here that they gave beyond their means, I, I think we need to understand that as well because we may hear the phrase today that a lot of people are living beyond their means. What does that mean? It means that because of credit cards or unwise mortgages or other loans, they're living in debt. They're spending more money than they really ought to spend. They're digging themselves into a hole debt-wise. That's not what Paul's talking about here. They are not giving recklessly to where it, it severely endangers their future because of debt. They aren't taking out debt and loans in order to give to the church in Jerusalem. What it's talking about here, when they give above and beyond their means, it means, you know what, look at how much they're giving. It's so much beyond what you would naturally expect someone in their circumstance to give. So they're giving generously and sacrificially. And that shows that when God is at work in someone's heart, it empowers this joyful, sacrificial generosity on others' behalf. Now today, as I said, I want to weave together some insights from this passage along with just insights I learned from God in the process of raising my financial support with crew. One of the things we have to understand is that the scope of these projects was very different. Whether you look at the money going to the church in Jerusalem or my support as a missionary or the, the, the capital campaign for the, uh, for the building project. I mean, the amount of support that I was raising as a missionary was only, it was a little bit less than 10% of the total goal of our capital campaign. So it's a big difference in scope, but the principles are, are generally the same. I think of how back when I was raising financial support, I had a number of contributors who gave larger amounts that helped move me more quickly toward the goal. I had a number of people who were giving $100 a month. A few people giving in the range of $150 a month. One was giving $250 per month to help support my ministry. And for most of those who were giving those larger amounts, they were giving out of wealth. That they had money that, that was not um, absolutely necessary to feed their family and pay their mortgage. And so they were giving out of their means. But it wasn't a huge, huge sacrifice. But at the same time, I also recognized that, you know what, I'm so thankful for that because it's still generous. It still is, is a huge benefit for me. And also, they could have spent that money a thousand other ways. So I did not take it for granted that they chose to invest in God's work through my ministry. One of the other things that we have to understand that's very, very important is, is how valuable those larger contributions were for my ministry. Because without the larger contributions, whether it's to my ministry or whether it's to the capital campaign or even whether it's to that church back in Jerusalem, these types of projects are not going to really get off the ground. And so the larger contributions are most certainly very valuable. But smaller contributions are valuable as well. You know, the majority of the support that I received when I was on staff with crew was more in the range of $50 a month, $35 a month, $25, $15 a month. I even had one family 
who is supporting me at $5 per month. You know what? They love Jesus very dearly. They were super excited about my ministry. They just did not have much money at all. But they still wanted to have a part in the ministry. And so in addition to praying for me, they contributed $5 per month. And, and that meant a lot to me. And it meant even more to me uh, about two years later when I found out that there were two things that I, I wasn't aware of before. That one, they kept every single update letter I sent them. Because every month I sent out an update letter to all my supporters and the people praying for me, just um, sharing stories about what God was doing in the ministry. I don't know of anyone else, even my parents, who kept every single letter that I sent. But this family did. They kept them right next to their refrigerator, I found out, and they read them on a regular basis. One of the reasons they read them was because, secondly, they were prayer warriors. They prayed fervently for my ministry. And, and you know, their care and their prayers and the $5 a month they contributed to my ministry, it meant so much to me. You know, some people, even in light of the capital campaign that we have going on here, they look at that number, $1.4 million, and it can seem so daunting. And they look at that and think, you know what, there's no way I can even scratch the surface on that number. Is it even worth it to give? What we have to understand is that contributions, both small and large, make a difference. This week I thought of an analogy. Um, I imagine that many of us vote. We're involved when the election comes around and we go out and vote. If you vote in an election, why do you vote? Because if you really look at it from a kind of cynical perspective, you know, most of the time our vote really doesn't make a difference. Especially on a statewide or nationwide type of election, one vote in the midst of millions and millions generally doesn't make that much of a difference. So a cynic might say, well, why even vote? Does it really matter? It does matter. On a personal level, it matters in terms of ownership in the process. That, that, that you, by, by doing your part in the process, have a sense of ownership. That, you know, I'm a part of the larger process of electing our government, government officials. So you have a sense of ownership in the process when you vote. On top of that, when, when, um, think about what would happen if you had a large group of people who all said, well, you know, I don't think my vote makes much, much of a difference. I'm just not going to. Then it's going to make a big difference. Because it's the cumulative effect of a lot of people voting that makes a difference. It's the same thing financially, that when we give financially, according to what God's calling us to, it, whether it's a small amount or a large amount, it gives us a, an ownership stake in the process. That if we give to the capital campaign, when we see the completed building and, and the AV systems and the, the chairs that are comfortable and the coffee crafts out there and stuff like that, we have a sense of ownership in that because we are part of the process. And also we have to understand that our, our contributions, whether small or large, it's part of the cumulative effect of reaching the goal. You know, with the amount of money I raised for crew, $2,820 per month, it was all over the board in terms of what was coming in. I mean, as little as $5 a month. I got, I got a letter, uh, actually a package, from a Sunday school class once that it was $7 and a whole, a whole bunch of hand-drawn pictures from these kids. That meant so much to me. All that adds up together in order to get you to the goal. I mean, when you look at our Sunday morning bulletin, you see the, um, just the giving update in the lower right-hand corner. 
that's, that's 100 plus gifts any given Sunday coming together, some large, some smaller, coming together to make that total. Every contribution matters, whether large or small. Now, thinking back to 2 Corinthians 8, we see these Macedonian Christians. They were giving. They were giving generously. Many of them were giving even above and beyond what you would naturally expect when you look at their financial means. But they did it with joy. And I saw that a few times in my support raising with crew as well. I think of one example, a woman named Penny. While I was raising financial support, I had the opportunity to speak in a handful of different churches. Actually, I think it was about 10 different churches that I spoke at. And on one particular church, I spoke in the service, and then they had Sunday school classes afterwards. And so I was invited to a Sunday school class, and in that particular class I was there, and they were asking me questions, and I was sharing a little bit more. And then I said to them, you know what, if any of you are interested in learning more about how you could support my ministry financially, or you want to be a prayer partner, please just talk with me after class. And this woman named Penny came up and, and talked with me, and, and I gave her a commitment card. Um, and I, I didn't know her at all before that day, and I didn't get to know her super well even then. But I, I learned enough through the class and through that conversation to learn she's a single mom. She's a nurse, and that God had worked in big ways in her life over the last few years. And so I gave her that commitment card, and I mean, didn't really know what, what would come with that. I didn't even know, will I even see that commitment card ever again. But then about a week, week and a half later, an envelope came in the mail from Penny. And I opened up that envelope, and she was supporting me for $100 per month on an ongoing basis. First check was in the envelope. And I, I almost fell out of my chair. I mean, I was shocked. That was not at all what I was expecting, especially knowing some of the, some of the circumstances financially in her life. But she gave according to her means, and even beyond her means, at least from what I could see. And that type of generosity means so much. But I believe that it was given out of a sense of joy and a sense of gratitude for what God had done in her life. But I think we still have to ask the question, what does make people give to God's purposes in a sacrificial way? And I think the answer is right here. When we've talked about the same answer the last few weeks, that the people consecrated themselves to God. Look with me over to verse 5. It says that the Macedonians gave not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, they gave themselves first to the Lord. It's the idea of consecrating themselves to God. We saw this in the last couple weeks back in 1 Chronicles 29. 29 verse 5, King David said, Who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Who will lay themselves down before God as a worship offering, saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. That is a heart that's ready for God to work through them. That is a heart that's ready to give to God's purposes with joyful generosity. So it begs the question of, you know what, how's our heart doing? Where is our heart towards God? Are we tuned in to the joy of the Lord? Because when we're tuned into his joy, rather than getting caught up in the busyness and, and especially the stresses of this world, letting those just get us down, he gives us joy to worship him wholeheartedly, which then leads to generosity and all kinds of other blessings. Are we fully surrendered to him, or are we still holding something back? They consecrate themselves to God. So that's the first and main example 
that Paul gives here, motivating them toward generosity. There is a second key example, and it's so important that I don't want to skip over it. So look with me to verses 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 say, um, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so in the second example of joyful generosity that Paul gives, he gives the example of Jesus and how Jesus is the supreme model of joyful, sacrificial generosity. Paul says that he was rich. Speaking of his heavenly glory that he's had from eternity past, yet for our sakes, Paul says, he became poor. Referring to the time 2,000 years ago when he stepped off his heavenly throne, came into this world, took on flesh, was confined here for 33 years, became obedient even to death on a cross. He became, he was rich. He became poor so that we who were poor, meaning spiritually speaking, separated from God, hopeless in life eternity, so that we who are poor may become rich. Referring to the fact that, that through Jesus, we can be reconciled with God and be given a new relationship with him and many other benefits that come from that. So Jesus, I mean, this is a picture of his grace. We did not deserve that. But Jesus did that out of his love. And it was joyful generosity. And we have to understand that, that when we understand the gospel, our giving is motivated by grace, not by guilt. And we all can probably picture what it's like to give, whether it's our time, our energy, our talents, our money, out of guilt. It's not any fun. It's like, I mean, you're getting your arm twisted and there's no joy in that. But you look at joyful generosity that we see in this passage. It's motivated not out of guilt, but out of grace. Because when, and when generosity is motivated out of grace, it's accompanied by joy. Joy drives it as its fuel and joy is the result from it as well. And so what we see here is joyful generosity fueled, motivated by the grace of God. The grace of God that's been demonstrated through Jesus. And I think it's even fascinating in this passage how Paul's terminology for generosity in this passage is that it's an act of grace. That our generosity to others is an act of grace. God's grace flowing into our lives that then flows through us like a conduit into other people's lives. And so we see this beautiful picture of generosity that is fueled by grace. And so if we want to grow in having a generous heart toward others, and again, generosity is not merely financial, it's also with our time and with the talents and skills and experiences God gives us. If we want to grow in these things, it's vital that we grow in understanding and cherishing the grace of God. Now I want to return to that story of, of how God really deepened my faith through that support raising process. I began to raise financial support on August 1st of 2002. And my goal that I was praying towards was I would be able to be on campus at North Dakota State by second semester in January. That meant that I knew that I would need to raise my financial support in about four months or so by early December to allow me time to go up to Fargo, meet the staff there, and find a place to live and to really hit the ground running when the second semester started in, in January. So that was an ambitious goal. Not impossible, but certainly ambitious. And throughout the entire support raising process, my mind kept gravitating to John chapter 11, verse 40, where Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
Now, when Jesus spoke that, it was into a very different context. But I still clung to that. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? I want to see God glorified through that support raising process and through the ministry. And so I was praying, God, if there's any way I want to be on campus by January, can you please raise the support? And remember, I was kind of scared at first. It was kind of a daunting task. And, and I knew the pace at which I needed to see uh, support come in in order to get there by January. And, and money was coming in, but a little bit more slowly than what that pace would be to get there by January. And I got to uh, the first week of November, and I was at only about 50% of my support goal, which in the big scheme of things was still a pretty good rate. But it wasn't quite enough to get me there by the beginning of January. And I remember I had one appointment about a week into November. It was with a, a husband and wife, empty nesters. Um, they, they had a, a pretty sizable income. And, and it was a great appointment. They, they were really excited about my ministry. And, and I could tell they, they planned to support it. And I was thinking probably support it pretty significantly. And um, we agreed, okay, they'll take a couple days just to talk about it and pray about it. And then we agreed on a time I'd call them back to get their decision. And so I called them back a couple days later, and I was all excited, thinking, okay, this is going to be a start of, of something new that's going to push me over that edge for that final 50% to get me to campus by January. And I called them back, and the wife was the only one home then, and she said, you know what, I am so glad that we waited a couple days, because my husband just called me. He was out on the East Coast for business at that point. He just called me and said that, that he lost his job, that, that the company is downsizing, and he's out of work. And so it became very clear very quickly that they're not going to be able to support me financially. And so suddenly I had this two-track thing going on in my mind. On one hand, what was coming out of my mouth as we were talking was, you know, trying to minister to her and encourage her. And we were talking a lot about the faithfulness of God. And, and I, I began to think, you know what? And I said, has there ever been a time that God's been unfaithful? The answer was no. You look through Scripture, you look down through history, and God's timetable is not always ours. But... There's never been a time when God's been unfaithful. So I was encouraging her with that, and she was kind of encouraging me as well. And I had this other track of my mind that was kind of crushed. Because remember, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be the couple. They, they, who knows, maybe give a couple hundred dollars a month, kind of launch me forward in that final 50%. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, man. And, and it was interesting. I'm sitting there at that desk talking with her for quite a while, and I have this, these two tracks of thinking going on. And then... I have a little calendar. It's a free little pocket calendar that my dad got somewhere in the mail as a promotion for something. And I had these inspirational sayings across the top of each month. And so I'm sitting there as I'm talking on the phone, looking at the calendar. Am I the only one who does that sometimes? Has a conversation while doing something else? So I was doing that. And I'm looking at that calendar because I'm all getting down here. And I flip over to December, just calculating how many weeks left are there. And, and I see that where it says at the top of this calendar, it's not a Christian calendar at all, but it says those who walk with God always reach their destination. And it caught my attention. I'm not someone who looks for signs in all kinds of different places, but I saw that, and what it reminded me of is, you know what, God? You are still faithful. Has there ever been a time in my life or in human history where you've been unfaithful? And the answer is no. This is actually a board that I was putting together through that support raising process. This is a complex our engineer up here, Adam, was looking at this and said, this makes no sense at all. I explained it to him, and I think it may have made sense. Uh, but this was my way of tracking referrals and meetings and just to see God's faithfulness through the process. And then later I added this question of, 
has there ever been a time when God has been unfaithful? And I put the little cutout of that December calendar at the top about those who walk with God and always reach their destination. But that night as I'm on the phone, yeah, I remember God's faithfulness, but I'll also say that was the lowest point emotionally in my support raising journey. Because I was so hopeful. And those hopes were dashed. And so I was, I was kind of broken. I was struggling. And it's interesting. Because I think what was happening was, it was a point of surrender. I'm saying, God, I can't do this. And it's interesting because the very next day started kind of the floodgates of support coming in. And over the next three weeks, my final 50% of my support came in. So that on December 1st of 2002, I reached 100% of my support goal. Exactly four months after the day I started. And then I was able to go up to Fargo for a week and a half um, in December, find a place to live, meet the staff, start meeting the students, and really hit the ground running at the beginning of January. And I look at this example and I recognize, you know what, there, there's so frequently where God's timetable is not ours and God's purposes are not ours and we have to wait for something that we don't want to wait for. And so I'm not saying that just because we pray and just because we follow God, it's always going to work out exactly how we're thinking or praying. Because that's not always the case. But I look at the process God was leading me through in those four months, pushing me so far outside of my comfort zone, but then providing in, in ways that only he can. And it gave me a confidence in his trustworthiness that continues to, to shape my life even today. And I think it's important that we recognize that in these topics of funding, whether it's funding for the church in Jerusalem, whether it's funding for uh, sending a missionary to campus at North Dakota State University, or funding for a building project, that the funding and the things that the funding buys is not the end goal. It's merely a means to the end. Because when you give a Sunday morning offering here, what you are paying for is the salaries of staff people. You are paying for electrical bills to keep lights on, which I think we appreciate. You're paying for the food that is offered on Sunday mornings. You, you are paying for curriculum that's used in classes. Those are the things that you're contributing to. Those are merely means to an end. If you contribute to the building project and the capital campaign, you're contributing to brick and mortar, basically. That's still just a means to the end. The end goal, whether it's my ministry in Fargo or my ministry here or what we're doing at the church, is change lives through the gospel. And that's what, that's what people were giving towards, and that's what we saw happen. These are pictures of a few of the men, actually uh, the main people who I was investing in while I was in Fargo. There were a lot of others I invested in as well, but these are a, a snapshot, literally, uh, of, of people who are coming to faith in Christ and growing in their walk with God and becoming disciple makers. And many of them are still today walking closely with Jesus and helping others grow as followers of Jesus as well. That is what the goal was. The financial support was nearly a means to the end. And, and I think about our purpose here at the church. Everything we're doing is trying to see changed lives here. And these are pictures of a few people here at the church who Jesus is working in their lives as well over the last few years. And I could put a whole lot of other pictures up there. I will tell you, if you see your picture up there, you know I did not ask your permission to put it up there today. But well, the reason I was comfortable doing that is because everyone whose picture is up there over the last few years, has publicly shared with the church family in some manner or another, whether a baptism picnic or here on Sunday mornings or Easter service or in writing, about God's work in their lives in recent years. That's what the goal is. 
is seeing God change people's lives. And so everything we're doing is seeking that end goal. And you know what? The building project, it's a means to the end. And we look at that, that number of $1.4 million to help fund the building project. That is daunting. I will tell you that there have been times over the last couple of months where I look at that number and that song comes to mind of hold me Jesus because I'm shaking like a leaf. Because it's kind of daunting. But I also know that God's been calling us in this direction for a long time. And where God calls, he provides. And that gives me and I hope it gives us all confidence in this process. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy with everything in our lives. And there are times where we face difficulties and challenges that we don't quite know how it's going to turn out. But Lord, even in those times, you are still trustworthy. Lord, we thank you that you are trustworthy to bring to completion the good work that you've begun. Whether it's in our personal lives or in our church, we think about how this church here at Freedom has been around since 1854. That is mind-boggling. But you have been faithful down through the decades. And we trust that you will be faithful into the future. We do pray that you will continue to bear fruit in and through this church, not for our glory, Lord, but for yours. We recognize that anything good that happens in this church or that happens in our lives personally is purely by your grace. And so, Lord, we want to say thank you for your amazing grace that, that is far beyond anything we, we could ever ask or imagine. And we pray these things with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.